Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Come in, please. I would not ask you to stand in the drear and the mug, so come, come in. Yes, it's not a pleasant evening in the neighborhood, so come in, relax, settle in for some chills and fellowship. A few things you should know. First, yes, this is another week in the life of Tales to Terrify, our 75th gathering. Also, I am Lawrence Santoro, the buzzer was correct, and finally know that you are welcome to the nook, this little space within and just to the side of our home space, to Celia's, Mahler's, Tabitha's, and mine. And you're welcome to treats, chilled or warm beverages, as is your wont, and to some genuinely excellent storytelling. So pour, dig in, find a spot to curl up in and a chum to snuggle with. Tonight we will have our second visit with those who survive in the afterglow of life when Sylvia Schultz leads us into one of the most haunted places in America. We'll go lights out in a moment. Also tonight... Ms. Anne Michaud will give us a post-apocalyptic view of a world crawling with, well, I don't want to spoil the surprise. Just know that it is very, very creepy. But first, new art, well, New. What we have this month is an image from about 1790-91. It's by Swiss-born English artist John Henry or Johann Heinrich Fuseli. Have a look. It's on the wall, just behind you. Hmm? Yes? Yes. When I was a tot, well, does anyone... 
actually believe that I ever was a tot. Or more to the point, does anyone believe that I ever left my tothood? Well, so. So when I was not a tot, but when I was not quite a young man old enough and was still young enough to be thoroughly creeped out by the strange insinuations Fuseli placed on this canvas, I think I knew somehow that this sort of thing might lead to a lifelong, shall I say, interest. The picture, as I saw it, was in a book, a parent's book, and, well, it's one of the artist's nightmare paintings. There are several. Oh, if you're listening via a download from iTunes or some other such service, I do hope you'll stop by our homepage at TalesToTerrify.com and have a look. While there, of course, you might also take a moment to make a contribution to us and the other shows in the District of Wonders. We all share in your largesse. You know that, right? Yes. This one is probably Fuseli's second best-known painting, the best-known being an earlier version of The Nightmare, which has a far more solid-looking homunculus perched on the woman. For my taste, the beast is just too solid-looking, almost like a garden gnome grown hungry and becoming selfish. And this one seems more gibbering, doesn't it? And I like this for its concentration of the picture's various elements in a nice, classically vertical triangular composition. Lest you think, by the way, that Mr. Fuseli is, dare I say, a one-trick pony, as it were, I suggest you look him up on the Google machine. Look for his images. Quite piquant, in a sharply stimulating or provocative sort of way. Generally, his images were of the dark, the bad, dreamlike supernatural. They're worth perusal by all lovers of the night. Okay. But do stop by our site and, well, you know, look at the image and make a contribution or a commitment to Tales to Terrify, okay? Okay. Oh, yes. Also, stop by our Facebook page from time to time. Let us know what you think. Engage your fellow nooknicks in conversation, debate, disagreement, verbal punch-ups such as are common on most Internet forums. We haven't had a really good brawl yet. Hmm, wonder why. Polite, I guess. Ah, well, down to brass tacks. Tonight, Sylvia Schultz, our fearless ghost hunter in residence, continues leading us through the halls, wards, basements, and morgues of some very haunted places. Oh, one thing. There are moments of silence in this segment, silence wherein we await word from beyond. Just go with them, okay? Are we now ready to go? Lights out, everybody.
This is Sylvia Schultz, the host of Lights Out. Welcome to the show. I wanted to thank everyone who gave me such a warm welcome last time, and a great big thank you goes to Larry Santoro, the host of Tales to Terrify, for inviting me to do the show. Some of you even wrote in to me to tell me that I'd done well on the first episode. Richard Farron Barber sent me a message on Facebook saying, Hi, Sylvia. I just wanted to say what a great addition your segment is to Tales to Terrify. I listened to it in the car on the way to work in a state of near-permanent terror. I can't wait for the next episode. Well, thank you so very much, Richard. I really am glad that you enjoyed the show. I hope everyone else is enjoying it as much as Richard is. I'm going to be bringing you thrills and chills and a few laughs now and then for a long time to come. I love hearing from all of you out there in Electron Land, so if you like what you're hearing, please feel free to drop me a line. Either friend me on Facebook, or there is a Facebook page set up for one of my books, Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital, and you can always like that page and send me a message through the page. I'd love to hear your comments, but now it's time to go Lights Out. Tuberculosis is a virulent disease that still, even now, kills millions of people per year worldwide. In 1939, a doctor at the Peoria State Hospital, Dr. Maxim Pollock, did a study on tuberculosis at the asylum. He discovered that 95% of people, staff as well as patients, at the asylum suffered from some form of tuberculosis. In 1940, the asylum decided there was a need for a dedicated TB ward. Even so, it would be another 10 years before the Pollock was actually built. The Pollock Hospital opened in 1950 and closed, along with the rest of the asylum, in 1973. During this period of 23 years, there was an average of three to five deaths a week at the Pollock Hospital. This, naturally, makes the Pollock one of the most haunted buildings at the asylum. Because tuberculosis is such a highly contagious disease, often whole families would succumb. An investigator shared with me the following EVP that they recorded at the Pollock. Since you'll likely be listening to this as a podcast, please feel free to back up and listen until you hear the faint voices at the end of the clip. You'll hear an investigator ask three times if anyone is there, if anyone wants to say anything. Then, very faintly, you'll hear a little child say, In here, followed by a deep male voice saying, Get back. Is this maybe a father wanting his little one not to talk to strangers? Is there anyone in here? Anyone in here? You want to say something? As a paranormal investigator, I find the most incredible thing about the Pollock to be that the supernatural can be experienced here by every single one of the senses. People have seen full-bodied apparitions here, as well as shadowy figures. 
Tuberculosis causes lesions on the lungs. Coughing ruptures those lesions, and one of the classic symptoms of TB is coughing up blood. People have tasted blood in their mouths while in the pollock. Sometimes the taste is so strong they have to leave the building and go outside to vomit in the grass. People have been touched. I myself had someone hold my hand for several minutes in the basement of the building. I was investigating the building with Peoria Paranormal, and we were in the basement using a ghost box to communicate with the spirits. A ghost box is essentially an AM radio set up to scroll through the dial to produce white noise from which the spirits can form words. Oh, wow. Come on up and speak right into my box that I got in my hand here. Okay. Yeah, I'm fine. I just, it's just like something, my hand is warm. Really? Yeah, yeah my left hand. Oh, it's definitely warm. It's like something warm is holding my hand. That is so cool. I've never been touched before. I think this. I think this might be it because it feels like something warm. Something warm is holding my hand, and it's not a breeze. It's just like something warm around my hand. This is. Cool. <laughs> and this is totally awesome. Can you tell me your name, please? Were you just holding somebody's hand? Stacy, can you tell me what's going on here? Because this is wonderful. Is someone holding my hand? I really want to know. Warms it. It's hard to say. Hold on. It's, the, it's like this warm pulsing on my fingers. I'm not focusing on it. I'm focusing on something else. Sorry. <laughs> I'd really love to know. I'm disappointed that my body's not coming out to say hi to me. Now it's fading. It wasn't a little girl, it was a man. Yeah. Oh, wow. This was the man. Oh, my. The little girl's voice was on the thing. It said, stop. Do you want me to stop? This is a friend. Now it's back. It's fainter than it was. You know what my name is? You have a phone. That is so cool. It's always a day. My friends are here. How many spirits are down here with us? Yeah, it's 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 much fainter than it was. Ten. Wow. Yep. Ten. Ten. Yep. Ten. Ten. Yep. Ten. <laughs> Thank you. Earlier that same evening, I'd gone down to the basement with a group of investigators. There was already a group down there, so we decided to go back upstairs to the women's ward. I didn't know most of the people that were there that night, so when a girl with long blonde hair fell into step behind me as we were going up the basement stairs, I didn't think anything of it. 
It wasn't until I got to the top of the stairs and turned to hold the heavy metal door for her that I realized that all wasn't exactly as it seemed. We'll be back. Oh, I can understand that. There's one that comes up to the steps. She's followed us up the steps. So. Right behind us right now? Yeah. She's more than welcome to follow She won't. Because I... She won't go any further. I could have sworn there was someone else behind me. Yeah, she won't go any further. Oh. Gotcha. So you didn't have a scare. You feel that coming up behind you? I saw someone out of the corner of my eye. I thought it was another investigator. We'll let them continue down there. Maybe they can get... Another sense that gets involved at the asylum, and especially at the Pollock, is one's sense of smell. I talked to an investigator with Illinois Ghost Seeker Society named Danielle, who told me that she and her team were sitting in the men's death ward at the Pollock when they all started smelling something very odd and out of place. It smelled like Christmas, was how she explained it to me. It was a curious mixture of cinnamon and a whole lot of pine. The Peoria State Hospital was well known for its use of alternative cures. In herbal medicine, white pine is just about the best chest decongestant there is. Balsam was also used to loosen phlegm. The investigators could very well have been smelling some bygone chest liniment. Chris Morris is in charge of the Pollock and has been steeping herself in the history of the asylum for years. Chris told us how she first became involved with the Peoria State Hospital. What is it that made you this um, involved? Uh, I was about seven years old, and my grandpa brought me up here for the first time. We have a family member that's buried in the cemeteries. Oh, and when he brought me to the hilltop, he told me that special people were here. Now, I thought he meant giants because yeah. the buildings were enormous. Yeah. And I was always enamored with the place. Well, I, I got to be a teenager and started to hear all the campfire stories. The abuse and the torture and the shocking everybody and, you know, yeah. how terrible it was. So I started looking into it myself. started going into the libraries and, you know, getting all the information I could possibly yeah. get. And the, the story I started, the puzzle piece together, wasn't anything like what you hear. So at that point, I started to tell people the truth about the asylum, which didn't give me a very good reputation in high school. Mm -hmm. Became the asylum girl. So, <laughs> and even since then, I've always been tried to be involved with any historical stuff that's involved up here. Okay. She also shared with us some of the research she's done on the history of the asylum. So, that is way Now, I found cool. this in the bakery before they tore it down. It was shoved up in a light socket, and I haven't gotten wow. it back together yet. It's a daily time ticket, and one of the asylum newsletters is in here. Oh, wow. And I'm going to put it all back together eventually. They really? Aww. It even has a poem in there about how we treat our patients and their families with respect and that kind of thing. Oh. Now, have you ever seen this? No, you told me about it. <laughs> now, I made a copy. We don't hand this out anymore. We don't let people touch it and everything because okay. it's getting too old. Yeah. But I'm handing it to you because I don't mind. Okay. So you guys handle books all the time. You understand yeah. how they work. But that's the actual nurse's guide where I told you about her story about how the patient said, my mother is dead, my brother is dead, this is a nut house, and I am a hairbrush. <laughs> that actually comes from that. And it goes into detail on... That uh, for church, you got to double check their hair and their teeth and their nails. 
and you have to wash them every day, but doubly as much before they go to church because these people need to look nice when they go to church. That's what their life was before here. We make sure that their life is the same. Mm. You know, it, it really goes into detail on how every single ward of the hospital, because she had to go to every building, they, they really were treated so very well. Yeah. And then we were one of the first establishments to do a punch card. And that made yeah. sure they knew exactly what nurse or what orderly was in what place all the time. So if a patient was beaten or something bad had happened, you knew exactly what person was there. We were the one of the first institutions to do that. Did that ever happen? Were any patients beaten? On occasion, there was patient-on-patient violence. Uh Um, In the early days, we did have some patient-on-orderly, orderly-on-patient violence. was another reason why Dr. Zeller decided that women should be on the wards, um, because they were better. Soft-spoken word and a smile is better than the hard hand of a man. So, um, But, yeah, this is the kind of stuff that I've been collecting over the years to really give people a good history on what it was really like up here. I believe I went Last week we had a group here, and this lady, she actually worked here. Uh-huh. And she said that there was a patient, that she she was the queen. Oh, my. She was the queen. Mm-hmm. And the, the friend that's, that was next to her was her servant, and she followed her around all the time. And when the lady here gave her x-rays, the queen made a $100,000 check for her and she said it was really intricate. intricate. And I said, do you still have that? She says, I don't know. Oh. Can you imagine oh. something like that? Oh. Well, That's and she came in. Solution. She came in and she sat down for my history. And uh, I could see her up in the front row. And I was like, okay. And she, I did my history like I always do. And then she went first to Jackie's area. And then, Jackie, you go ahead and tell them what she said to you. Oh, she said, I came here. She said, I was ready to correct. I was ready to correct everything that was wrong. She goes, it was perfect. Everything that Chris said was right on. I said, here we go. Perfect. And she had such a good time. She had such oh. a good time. Now, this is somebody who worked here from 1953 okay. till 1969, she said. Mm-hmm. So right before we closed. That is a long time. That's almost 20 years. Yeah. And if she says that I'm on the mark, yeah. I'm on the mark. Oh, yeah. And that's a dietary board report. I thought I had my glasses with me. I didn't have them with me. <laughs> this I have to put back together. Oh, but and if we, you see uh, on the two ward reports, you'll see that uh, there's a building not on here because no patients were kept there. Oh, okay. <laughs> there's no Bowen. Oh, there's a lot. But if you look here, you can see the Leviton, the Talcott, oh, yeah. the Pollock. Sure, and Bowen's not even on there because no. there aren't any patients. There. That's right. <laughs> so that I think is very interesting. And then you have this. This is a bus pass from the actually the old hospital, oh. and it shows exactly how often the bus ran up here, so that you could visit your loved ones four times a day. And I mm. love the fact that, that the phone lot. number on there is only like four digits. <laughs> now the eerie thing about that is, occasionally we'll get text messages up here. And the text message will have nothing to say, but the phone number that comes in will be four digits. Well, so you can add that to your thing for sure. Because oh, it happens to us pretty regularly. Jackie was one of the first ones to get it, and we were like, "What? That doesn't even make sense. Why would it only be four digits?" And then I brought that out, and we were sitting here talking, and we were like, "How eerie is that? That we occasionally get blank text messages from a phone number that's four digits." I visited the Pollock one sunny April afternoon with Karen Dodd, who was interested in the place. Chris encouraged us to spend some time investigating the basement, 
which is one of the most haunted spots in the building. It's been pretty active down here in yeah. the last couple of weeks, so really? I'm going to let you do what you do. Do you want me to go ahead and pop these lights out? I don't have one on in there. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> you mean leave those on, bro? Um, yeah, let's Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm just the biggest... We will be just right upstairs and you guys Shit. spend as much time down here as you feel comfortable spending. All right, cool. <laughs> confidence in me. Thank you. <laughs> I am freezing though. It is really cold in here. Wow. Yeah. When we got down there, I told Karen a few of the anecdotes that volunteers had shared with me. And there are several wonderful spirits down here, as well as one that is really kind of unpleasant. Um, there's the spirit of a little girl down here named Elizabeth. She's about five years old. And uh, investigators think that she has some sort of, had some sort of speech impediment in life because the, any EVPs that we get that can be attributed to her are kind of garbled. Um, what is EVP? I mean, oh, I don't know what it is. Words. Uh, electronic voice phenomena. That's when you're recording. That's why I've had the, the recorder going on the entire time. Um, you don't hear it when when we're standing around talking, but when I play the recording back, hopefully someone will come up and, and be talking to us, and then you hear it on the recording later. Okay. So Elizabeth is down here. Um, the doll, <laughs> poor little doll, is sitting in a puddle of water there. Um, a couple summers ago, some of the volunteers came down here and they put a circle of baby powder on the floor and put the dog in the middle of the circle of baby powder. And the next time they came down, there was the, the doll was lying on her side, but there was a perfect circle of drag marks where her heels had um, been spun around in the baby powder. Experiences that a lot of people have had down here. We'll go ahead and go into the morgue here. This is a really inadequate little flashlight. <laughs> wow. You see that door right over there? That is a great big metal door. It leads into another small room. Uh, people will hear that door open and shut with a great big groaning clang but it doesn't actually move. Mm -hmm. um, this right here is the morgue where the bodies were stored until, until relatives came to claim them, claim the bodies. What will happen quite often when people are down here at night doing investigations is that they'll see a shadow poke out from behind that, in the doorway, a shadow will peek out, keep track of what you're doing. Once inside the morgue, we sat quietly for a while, hoping to get some sign of paranormal activity. While we didn't hear anything unusual, our attention was caught by a strange shadow that showed up on the wall of the morgue. Yeah. Are you talking about this one here? Uh -huh. That's the one I was noticing. It seems 
It seems almost to get darker and lighter as I'm looking at it. To me, it seems like it gets it goes down a little bit. Yeah. And moves to the side. So I'm not the only one seeing that. That's good. Mm-hmm. So it seems to me. See if see if you're you're noticing the same thing. Here's the head. Here's the torso. And here's the arm. It seems like the arm is fading in and out. Mm-hmm. And it seems it moves over to the left and expands. Yeah, the, the, the dark spot is getting bigger. And I'm so glad I'm not the only one seeing that. Now it's a little lighter. What I'm looking at is I'm sitting about in the middle of the morgue, which is dark, and there is the, the, the door between the rest of the basement and the morgue is open, and the light is on in the other part. So there is light coming in through the door, and anyone standing in that doorway would cast a shadow right where I'm looking, right here. Yeah, see? Karen just got up and moved. What we were both looking at is a shadow cast on the wall that seems to be fluctuating a bit. It's about three foot tall. And I'm just realizing she left me alone in the morgue. Thank you. <laughs> and here's there's Karen's shadow. And she's coming back into the room. And that shadow is still on the wall, but it seems... It's fluctuating. It's getting darker and it's getting lighter. I see the lighter. Yeah, there's the, there's a shadow of the wire up on top. But this is the shadow, a human-shaped shadow, about three foot tall. It looks for all the world like there's somebody standing in the doorway. Well, whoever you are, thank you. This wasn't the first time I'd seen shadows at play in the morgue. In December 2011, I was in the morgue late at night with a group of ghost hunters, and Elizabeth came out to play with us. Sam Collier, the son of the building's owner, was the one the shadow concentrated on the most. Did you see I did see that. I was wondering because I didn't see his hand move, but I saw the shadow of the jacket. Jacket moved, just like that. Thank you. What is that? Are you seeing this? I am. There's a shadow on his jacket, and his arm is not moving. Nothing to move. Wait. Nope. It's not her. It's not her. Okay, we have to make sure. Are you moving at all, Sam? No. I can tell he's not moving. 
Watch it this way and the other way, back towards him. No. Hands up. No. I know. Oh my God. I'm seeing this. And it's it's not me. I thought it was me. It's not me. This oh is God, that's scary. Don't panic. It's, it's okay. Don't it's, you're fine. Like you. It's okay, Sam. They like you. It's yeah. Okay. I think it's a child. I do believe it is. Because it's short. It says, I boy child. So, Sam, this is wonderful. Yeah, we did. I, I thought it was me. I thought it was my shoulder, but it isn't. It's not... She walked right into his Yeah, car. we walked right through it. It's gone. Oh, we're sorry. Please come back. Oh, I was just trying to feel the coldness. It's okay. You can come back. You're fine. We, we'd we love to see you again. Wait, did you move? No. Okay. I'm sorry if I scared you. Oh, hold on. This camera catches it. Oh, my God. We see you. Thank you for coming to play with us. Behind the post, it's still on you. Go it's, ahead, it's walk, walk back over here. There you are. Hello. Don't move, Sam. You stay. Hi. Watch the front of his coat. Are you comfortable? Okay, over there, alone? Yeah, I'm good. You're doing great, Sam. My heart's racing now. I. That's. You're fine. You're doing awesome. You're doing great. You can move take, anytime you want to. Take okay. a deep breath, Sam. Just take a deep breath and relax. It's really, Sam, it's really great that you're wearing a dark coat with a light shirt underneath because you can see a shadow very clearly on your shirt. And it's not moving with your jacket. It's not moving with your arm. This is fascinating. I feel like it's, I'm pain around my foot. Okay. What? Uh, okay. 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 If you need to move, go ahead. Are you okay? Oh, yeah, Sam, that was amazing. <laughs> what did you say about the boy? Oh, my gosh. That was awesome. <laughs> One of my favorite pieces of equipment to play with is a ghost box. You heard an example of this earlier when we spoke with Christopher in the basement. My first experience with a ghost box was in the women's ward of the Pollock. Derek, an investigator with Peoria Paranormal, introduced me to this interesting piece of equipment. I was fascinated by the theory that spirits could use the white noise of the AM dial to form words. I said as much, and someone near us chose that moment to spit out the word bitch. I heard a very bad word. <laughs> I heard a very bad word, the word, the B word. Yeah. They, yes. no. oh. they they like to cuss yeah. sometimes. <laughs> so you know. They like to say some not so nice words. This is AM radio that it's scanning, so there's no reason you should hear the F word, the B word, any bad Right. We've heard a lot of F bombs and a lot of Oh, now I compliment you on saying how smart you are to use this and you call me a bitch? <laughs> I guess not. I guess not. <laughs> Are you okay with us being in this room with you right now? 
record. You want just me to leave since I'm a male? Do I not belong in here? Leave. Leave. <laughs> okay, I just got chills. All right, all right. I'm just saying. Go. <laughs> you don't really want me to leave, do you? Leave. Do you want Derek to leave? I really will leave. women. Yeah. I just saw a shadow. Kind of. Like actually in. Is there anybody in the hallway? He's the. It moved from right to left like literally across the window. I don't see anyone in the hallway. Can you say that again? Can we come back later, please? Yes. The Pollock Hospital is owned by the Limestone High School Junior Football League, who've put on a haunted house in the building every October. The teens volunteer to build the sets and help staff the haunt. The energy that builds up during those chilly weeks in the fall can be truly amazing. Chris Morris tells the story of some teens who were working their post in the men's death ward. The entrances and exits to the haunt are carefully controlled to maximize the actor's control as they guide guests through the haunt. The men's death ward door, which had been solidly locked, slammed itself open as the teenage actors watched. The energy at the Pollock Hospital can be intense at times, but most often... It's playful. Judy Sullivan was visiting the Pollock Hospital with her mother, Dorothy, who is sensitive to spirits, and a friend, Larry. Larry was taping as they walked along and said, Man, there are bunches of kids around here. Dorothy, who could see the spirits, reassured them that, yes, we're surrounded by children right now. And Larry was doing some recording And he looked up, and excitement was in his eyes, and he yelled, Judy, you have to come over here and listen to this. And he held up the recorder. On the recording, Larry was walking around and muttered to himself, Did I just hear a tap, tap, tap on the window? And just then, on the recorder, a child's voice piped up, Yup, you sure did. 
The Pollock is a favorite destination for paranormal investigators because of the incredible activity that goes on there. Watched over by the team of volunteers, the Pollock should provide history and chills for many years to come. It's got it all, hauntings and history. Again, I'm asked a lot on tour, why do we feel that we're one of the most haunted places in the United States if they were treated so well? Yeah, that crossed my mind. (laughs) One of the best things I've ever heard. Now, I always give my speech the same way. Why are most houses haunted? Because the people that live there loved their homes and felt safe there and simply don't want to go anywhere. We feel the same way about our institution. If you had been mistreated in the alms house or just set aside in your family as being different, there's a good chance when you arrived here... This was the best place they had mm-hmm. ever, ever been. They felt accepted. They don't want to go anywhere else. They're afraid in some cases. Why should I go through the light? I'm accepted here. I'm happy here. Just let me stay. Mm-hmm. Well, one day I was doing a tour through the cemetery, and a gentleman asked me that same question, and he said, why do you think they stay? And before I could go into my speech, there's an EVP of a little boy saying, it's so nice. Oh. I think that sums it up. Mm-hmm. <sighs> I hope you've enjoyed this look at the Pollock Hospital, the tuberculosis ward of the Peoria State Hospital. For many, many more stories about the Pollock, I invite you to read Fractured Spirits, Hauntings at the Peoria State Hospital. Please join me next time when I'll be chatting with Jim Heater, host of Paranormal Geeks Radio, about his experiences at several haunted sites in Havana, Illinois. I hope you can join me then. Until then... We're going to go. Lights out. Thank you, Sylvia. I am very much enjoying these explorations, so keep up the good work. Sylvia Schultz is an author, ghost hunter, librarian, motorcyclist, and a keeper of dogs. She's written not only about the ghostly doings in and around the Peoria State Hospital in her book Fractured Spirits, But she's written about ghostly doings along and around the Illinois River, and about the fictional doings of spooks, spirits, and werewolves, and other such critters of the night in several very good books. So, go to Amazon, type in Sylvia, S-H-U-L-T-S, and you will know all that you are like to know. Of her fetchings... Sylvia says she was an avid reader who was raised on Grimm's fairy tales, and thus began a fascination with ghosts and dark things in childhood. She began hunting the ghosts in 2009 while doing research for the aforementioned nonfiction book Ghosts of the Illinois River from Quixote Press. Sylvia lives in the suburbs of Peoria with her husband. She works at the Fond du Lac District Library, mostly to feed her book addiction, she says, and she also serves as publicity director for Dark Continents Publishing. Oh, in addition to horror fiction, Sylvia also writes romance books and is the first to admit that there is a fine line between the two.
Thank you again, Sylvia. I do look forward to next month. And remember all, it is later. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist. Fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Then you think. Okay. Fiction tonight is by Canadian author Anne Michaud. Anne says of herself, she should have been a filmmaker. She studied and worked at it for years, then decided at the last minute to be a writer of prose fiction. Hmm. I know. That, that is I. Ah, uh, well, that is she, too, I suppose. Of that she who writes, she says, and I quote, She who likes dark things never grew up. She never stopped listening to gothic, industrial, and alternative bands like when she was fifteen. She always loved to read horror and dystopia and fantasy where doom and gloom dripped from the pages. She, who was supposed to make films, decided to write short stories, novelettes, and novels instead. She, who's had her films listed on festival programs, has been printed in a dozen anthologies and magazines since. She, who likes dark things, prefers night to day, rain to sun, and reading to anything else. Unquote. Here, quoted, is Anne Michaud's The Lucky Ones. The baby slept in the delivery truck cabin, lying on the musty driver's seat, 
her soft, hungry whimpers a constant reminder that she'd wake up needing to be fed. Never enough milk to satisfy her. Never warm enough, safe enough. Having a baby was hard, but ever since the great Mar brought the apocalypse up to Earth and flooded the world with bugs, taking care of her was hell. Not that the baby had ever been wanted, or yet named. Jory squinted into the cargo area, the weak light of her flashlight reflecting off gutted crates at its back. Looted long ago, dented and discarded cans littered the bed, their produce tags lying soggy in puddles. Better than nothing. Better than starving. For Jory and her baby, it meant shelter and protection. But for how long? Winter had been bad, and yet they'd both survived the numbing nights and freezing days. Hibernation was the only reason why those things coming from the center of the earth hadn't killed them. Just like when bugs were normal size and merely a nuisance, the cold slowed them down. Spring lurked around the corner with its warmer breeze and deadly attacks. Running to escape, surviving for the baby. Another day, another night. Until she died, and it went black forever. Jackpot! Jory whispered at the hidden labeled cans under a destroyed bench. With the flashlight, she read, Sausages and beans. A fortune on the black market. Mama D would be thrilled about the meat and would probably let Jory sleep on the mattress for the find. Maybe she'd even take care of the baby for a day, freeing Jory from this constant pressing weight. With rapid shoves, she packed her backpack until she could barely lift it off the truck's bed and slid the remaining cans into her baggy pants pockets. Her mouth salivated, her stomach seized, having never been fully satisfied for the past year or so. A feast, she promised herself, once the scavenging mission was over and they were both safe at home. Home. The alien concept that had changed from an apartment with her parents to the high-rise full of petty thieves and bona fide mafiosi. At any cost, she and the baby had to keep away from the ground, but she knew it wouldn't change anything once the bugs crawled out of their holes to kill every human that crossed their path. Or much worse to drag the women back and force them into housing bugs in their bellies, becoming unwilling contributors to this destruction of the human race by breeding hybrids. Flicka, flicka, flicka. The chilling sound of the centipede's thousands of claws on the icy asphalt froze Jory in terror, her bones gone liquid. Half of the time she hallucinated them, but not this time. Now they were right outside and close, getting closer, louder, faster. She stopped moving, stopped breathing, as the cut-cut-cut of their jaws clapped on rocks and debris, approaching their feast in the truck. Her. Ready to fight, eyes on the dim opening at the other end of the cargo area, her heart sank as the unseen beast's clicks and clacks accelerated toward the front, away from her, but closer to the baby. She ran at length and jumped from the truck's high cargo bed, falling with a thud in the mud. The heavy load on her back slowed her movement, her breath caught in her throat, like in her nightmares where she froze in fear. The baby cried, and rage filled Jory's entire body, giving her so much strength she flung herself up from the slippery ground. Two peeds slithered on top of each other, their jaws clapping in excitement inside the truck's cabin. The baby's screams peeking with fear, Jory grabbed onto a can from her pocket and aimed it at the soft skin of the top hybrid bug, 
thinking its human torso would be easier to destroy than its black legs and head. Maybe her aim was off, or her strength wavered, but it didn't stop. It didn't even slow down. The baby wailed, then stopped. The following silence, the loudest sound Jory had ever heard. Never before had she loved her child as much. Never had she wanted so much to have her in her arms, alive and well. But it was too late. The baby she hadn't wanted was now gone, eaten alive. Her last moments on earth, horrifyingly, Jory's fault. The world crashed down on her. Tears fell, but she couldn't feel them. Her blurry vision dissipated the deserted streets. The ravaged bodies frosted under the ever-distant sun, the burnt carcasses of cars and buses and city. Four months old, tiny and demanding. Gone. The baby's soul. Gone forever. In shock, her mind blocked the munching of soft flesh, the slurping of the baby's blood, the cracking of her fragile bones. She heard nothing but the beating of her breaking heart. She saw nothing but a black void engulfing her. She whispered, then, finding enough anger and desolation to scream louder, Fucking bugs! You took her away from me! She was mine, and you killed her! The peds clambered from the cabin, blood and gore shiny on their black carapace heads, soiling the skin of their human parts, too. So tall, much taller up close, they stood on their back legs, hissing and snapping at her like snakes. She held on to another can of food, knowing it'd never stop them, but wanting to hurt them so much she couldn't think straight. Blood. She wanted to see their blood on the ground, their carapaces mutilated and their whole kin destroyed. Come on, come and get me! Jory stared at their beady eyes and snapping jaws, their little antennae clicking in the wind, the bulges in their bellies sliding down. Jory waited for them to pounce on her, but they never did. Instead, they coiled in on themselves, perfect circles of black, then slid under the truck. The wind twirled compact snowflakes from the sky, and she looked up until they fell into her eyes like rain, but brighter, colder, quickly changing from white to gray on the landscape of death. The last storm of winter saving her, but not her child. She picked up the two cans she'd thrown, buried deep in the pea goo they always left behind after a meal, and walked toward the highest skyscraper in the city, forbidding herself to see what was left of the baby, what they'd done. She missed the weight of the small child, and imagined that the backpack full of cans was her baby instead. Her eyes never left the tower of green glass and rusty metal that got nearer with every step. Like an old record, Remorse and grief tore at her heart as she repeated, I could have named her. I could have loved her better. I could have tried to be a good mother. Jory was truly alone, with no reason to live, which meant only one thing. Belak was waiting for her at the gallows, where he'd sworn five months before never to forget her, when he'd begged to return once everything was gone and nothing was left their final goodbyes to be said holding hands, a promise never forgotten. And she'd keep this one. 
even if she'd failed to keep her daughter alive. As soon as she stepped up the dark staircase leading to a hundred and something floors, a chill ran down her spine and she sensed a shift in the air. She touched the rail. Goo. All over the steps, the walls, rising up and up, sliding down like a slushy river. They've been here. Her voice echoed back at her. She didn't recognize it. Raw, hoarse, dead, like what she'd become. The floors of the makeshift apartments were unusually quiet. People usually crowded the beds made out of desks. Thin partitions for walls separated little but sound, while recycling bins became splashy latrines since the toilets didn't flush. Surviving, with no prospect of a future, no hope of getting out. That's what had become of humans. Jory. Her name in a breath came from the dark corner. Even with the soft hue of her flashlight, she couldn't see who'd spoken. She approached, ignored the crisp snaps under her boots, and lowered the light to the heap on the floor. Old man Sam. She kneeled by him, held his limp hand, ignoring the warm, slick blood covering every inch of his skin. What happened? Stupid question. She knew already. Had feared it ever since she'd joined the community. They took the women. Old man Sam's frail voice barely made it through the rush of blood in her ears. The white of his eyes reflected the dim light coming from outside. His face darkened by goo and gore, his torso opened from groin to throat. Couldn't you hear them scream? They took the girls down there, somewhere underground. But the others escaped. His wail stopped in a sigh. Jory shook him, afraid he'd die in her arms. Did they take Mama D too? Her guardian, the woman who'd hid a pregnant Jory as her belly grew and people believed she was infested with bugs, the sole human that cared for her baby when no one else had. Is she still up there? She hoped to find the old lady's corpse, because in the end, being dead was better than alive and captive. Like we always planned, they fled for the ice rink, the arena. Old man Sam breathed out and never inhaled again. Staring at the blood lining his old face, Joy remembered him smiling at her baby, saying the child was a gift, not a curse. How he whistled to them both as they fell asleep. Flicka, flicka, flicka. The echo of a thousand claws moved fast from above. She switched her flashlight off and peeked over her shoulder toward the door under the stairs. The only way out. She let go of old man Sam's hand and took a deep breath before entering the indoor parking lot. She prayed for silence when her backpack got stuck and her fingers slipped, the bang of the door behind her freezing the blood in her veins. The recycling traps on every floor had become the latrine drops, smearing the dumpsters at the end of the chute with heavy-scented human waste. Jory pressed her hand to her nose and breathed through her mouth, but the stench of ammonia blocked her throat and her eyes watered. Months' worth of feces had floated to the nearby cars, the massive shit visible in the light of the opened garage doors. Cold air usually froze the mountain of crap, its smell less pungent up in the dwellings, but here at the heart of it, there was no escape. Jory slipped on the floor, panic getting to her as the peds sneaked inside from the garage doors. There was nothing to do, no place to hide, 
No other way to mask her human flesh but to go into the pit of shit. If she didn't hide her odor, I'll die alone. Bile shot up her nose as she clenched her jaw. Acid burned her nostrils and throat and the tender skin around her mouth as it dribbled out. One leg in, then the other, then up to her neck. She closed her eyes, not only to refrain from choking on chunks, but in fear the bugs would see the whites of her eyes. She tilted her head down, prayed, Let them make it quick if they find me. Let them suffer if they don't. Sleek, as they approached the wall next to the dumpsters, the peds slowed and stopped. They coiled around the dead furnaces, further away from the garage doors, from the cold. Jory waited, her legs shaking from the weight on her shoulders and the itchy mixture on her skin, burning and sticky. Light slowly turned blue outside, darkening every corner infested by bugs, real or imaginary. I have to get out of here. She pushed herself out of the turd soup, her arms giving under the load she brought out with her, and found the hard, soiled cement head first as she dove onto it, her arms trapped in her backpack's straps, her cans knocked inside her backpack, making a racket. Fucking shit! She cursed the excrement that had made its way into every crevice of her body, but not the waterproof material. One bug moved, but in the freezing cold it rolled in on itself tighter, the white skin rippling with lean sections underneath, stretching it like leather. Wind picked up and snow mixed with litter moved in the breeze, bringing more peds in the parking lot. Two dozen hurried and scooted closer at the back wall, blocking the building door. Jory opted for the clear space leading outside, the fresh air calling to her. Under her slippery boots, little rocks and litter cracked until she shifted her weight into another step, sloppy pieces of shit dripping from her pants and flopping onto the cement. Bugs moved in the dark, pushing her to the snowfall waiting outside. Her army coat usually repelled weather, but not today. Soiled and soaked, she shivered and tried to remember where water flowed within reachable distance. The park, where she first met Balak, right before the invasion, the same spot where she told him the baby wasn't his months later. Did she resent the child for the breakup? Probably, but never as much as the man who destroyed her own body, leaving her broken and sore, and now her child was gone and she regretted not loving her enough, or loving her too late. Where the park's paths met like a star, a fountain with fish used to spit water from their gaping mouths. Now, muddy, shallow water sat motionless, capped with frost, litter frozen at the rim. Jory broke through the thin layer of ice with her fist, the sharp pang of icy water the best she'd felt in months. Quickly and effectively, she washed her skin and then dipped her entire body in the murky water that turned brown and sour. She moved so fast in the water, barely registering how painful it was. Hurrying away after the wash, the shit smell still stuck to her every pore and her military colors were stained. The army had been sure of itself, as it announced the invasion wouldn't last, taking precautions and handing out survival kits and warm clothes for the winter months. Then the TV went out, the internet, and the power altogether. Not that it really mattered, since the bugs had already infested homes and buildings, killed everyone in sight, and mated with strong young humans. At this, the army did nothing more than escape in helicopters. 
Sometimes Jory wondered where they landed, and if the big politicians, the movie stars, and the obscenely rich were still alive. Maybe they lived on the same island, away from commoners and safe from bugs. Maybe not. The cold wind swept Jory's short hair into frosty spikes, and her wet fatigues left her skin with permanent goosebumps. Her teeth chattered, and her limbs stiffened and ached, the shivers shaking her with great spasms. She walked a mile to the ice rink in a numbing shock, her body hurt as her mind, her heart refusing to beat normally. Firelit torches by the arena. Were they real? Was this a trap? She stood close to the flame, let it warm her skin until the dullness made way for a pinprick sensation biting her from inside. What used to be a busy street looked almost pretty under the snow. It covered the corpses and lit up the dark corners. Shouldn't stand in the wide open, baby. The thick Jamaican accent reached her from the side door reserved for hockey players and rock stars before. Mama D's wide frame blocked the dim glow, but her voice didn't cover the screams coming from inside. You've missed quite a day. Alive! Joy almost cried in relief. Mama D probably waited for Joy to show up with the promised food to give her tenants in exchange for protection during the attack, luring them to the ice rink where the cold would keep the bugs at bay. Where would they go once the ice melted in the summer? Sorry, Joy said, shoulders hunched, eyes low. She took off her backpack, the crusty layer of frozen shit cracking as it hit the ground. I'm leaving tonight. Mama D's heavy stare weighed down on Jory, her heart banging her ribcage to a painful beat. She couldn't say it, would not let her mind form the words. My baby is dead. They ate her. And now I'm leaving to find Balak. After an eternity, Mama D asked, Where is she? and approached her with tentative steps. Jory mouthed, Gone. She wouldn't reply to the hug Mama D tried to give her, she wouldn't cry about her own pain and misery. She didn't deserve it, not after how she behaved with her own flesh and blood. But to love a child means you love yourself, and to love yourself, you need to forget the past. Your mind is set, baby. I see it in your eyes. Mama D knew about the pact between Balak and Jory. A good-for-nothing, the old lady often said about him, the one who hadn't stuck around. You should rest and stay with me. You should forget about him and what you think you want. You're allowed to change your mind. This is goodbye. Joy finally met Mama D's big brown eyes, but the speech she'd come up with vanished like the plumes of breath coming from her mouth. I wanted you to have these, as a thank you. For everything. For never leaving her alone as she pushed the unwanted child out of her womb for helping her through breastfeeding struggles, for letting her stay when the others threatened to throw Jory and the baby out, because everyone feared the bugs could hear her cries at night. As fast as her frozen hands permitted, Jory untied the backpack and showed the food cans to the old lady, keeping her eyes on the ground. It used to make Jory smile, Mama D's flowery dresses and Sunday hats worn with combat boots and khaki coats. Nothing was funny anymore. Not in the cold night, with only death to relinquish. All black forever. He's dead. Your boy has long been gone. Mark my words, you'll regret going down to the gallows. 
Mama D stared hard with sharp eyes. He didn't stick around for you. He didn't wait until... Time stopped. You were ready. Please take care. Jory hugged her, tight and fast, not wanting Mama D to smell like shit for the rest of her life. Come back, Marjorie. Come back and help me with the wounded. Mama D's pleas didn't slow Jory's step, didn't affect her as it should. We need you! We've been left with nothing! The strong voice died in the wind as snow fell in clumps from the low clouds. Free. Jory walked alone in the night, body numb beyond cold, with one final destination. No more thinking of where she'd get the next meal for herself and the baby. Free from the hate, she couldn't quiet every time she had eyed her child. As her gaze landed on the factories called the Gallows, their broken windows and blackened walls, a fist of iron squeezed her heart. If he's there, everything will be fine, and I won't die alone. If he's not... Nothing came up. No options. A barrier separated her from the low and dingy buildings, and as she neared the wide span surrounding the perimeter of the district, her mouth fell open. Human bodies piled up, blocking access, bait for bugs to feast on. In the cold, a fresh corpse steamed with warmth in the night, his guts turning falling snow into rain as it landed. She held onto the highest body on the barricade, her head dizzy until she remembered to breathe the air filled with death. I'm so sorry, Jory whispered as she climbed, her hands and feet finding nooks and crannies, her eyes closed against what she held and kicked. Her mumbling the only sound in the night, she finally made it to the other side. They're the lucky ones. They're dead. The red glow of two cigarettes spotted the entrance, and Jory regretted giving the food cans to Mama D. Buying her way in would have been easier with those priceless gifts. She tipped her hoodie over her eyes and limped to the right, hunching her shoulders to appear like a boy, like Belak showed her. What's up? She changed her voice into a low growl, her forehead sprinkled with sweat. Kinda cold, staying out tonight. One moved aside heavily, stinking of beer and whiskey. Got to pay your dues, dude. They both laughed, the air scented of decaying teeth. Anything you've got that'll be of use. He approached and sniffed, wrinkling his nose. As long as it's not shit. The other thug burst out laughing as Jory untied her boots, biting the shiver from her lips as she took off her soul-worthy possession. Wool socks. Not one hole at the toes or heels, still looking clean since her boots always stayed laced up. She handed them over and tightened her jaw, the cold stiffness of leather like hunting traps. Welcome to the gallows, one of them said. She plunged into the darkness, and her boots echoed down steel staircases, the shock of cold and hardness shooting up from feet to spine. But then she melted with the noise and warmth of human bodies crowding the low-ceilinged expanse and forgot about her painful souls. Wax dripped on the packed dirt, industrial lamps hanging from tracks now used as candelabras. Jory touched the hot spot of red now adorning her sleeve and shrugged. Nothing mattered anymore, not where she slept or if she ate, as long as she found Belak. Bam! She slammed into Big Joe. 
mountain of a pusher, well-fed with oily skin, he stank of the same aftershave. Uncontrollable fear warmed her chest and she backed off, eyes bulging at his pig face with the mantra, "'He'll never touch me again.'" "'Back for round two. His grave voice reminded her of how he spoke the entire time he forced himself into her, how his cries had turned into hits, his fists like iron on her face. "'What you doing here?' he asked, after giving her a quick once-over. "'Got nothing for you in here, unless you got something to give.' "'Where is he?' Jory asked evenly, although her entire body stood frozen with fright. No one would stop him if he wanted another go at her. No one would notice in this crowd of whores and junkies. Where is Belak? He'd know. He made a fortune on her ex's addiction, hooking him from mescaline to angel dust. Big Joe grabbed Jory's coat and came close to her face, but she didn't look away. Don't fuck with his head. We've got good business going. After the tame warning, she ran off, thinking if she had a gun, she'd shoot him in the head right now. But she wanted to sleep, to find Balak and rest, rest her soul, her mind, and her body. The pain and remorse and guilt would fade into oblivion at last. She passed by the ship container, where Balak had told her about junkies shooting up in the dark by the flame of their lighters. Between a row of huge crates disguised as makeshift hotels and a corridor leading to the furnace room, she saw it. Just like he described it months ago, an air vent with a crooked grill. Balak, it's me, Jory. She couldn't help her voice for shaking. The cold, the fright, Big Joe, so many people in the underground bunker, and the reason why she came back to him all splashed her in the face at once. Tired. So tired, and wanting nothing but sleep. Jory scratched the grill off and ventured her hand in the dark. His body, she'd know it from anyone's. Skinny and thin, thinner than before, with his veins like strings under her touch, his skin softer now. The tips of her fingers brushed his shorter hair and she smiled, remembering how much she loved him, always had, always would. One last night by his side. Then they'd execute their plan. It's only me, Balak. She whispered her name like a good omen, even if she did smell like a toilet, and entered the pitch-black hole in the wall. Warm. He was warm against her frozen skin. I've come back for you, see? I did like I promised. And we'll be together forever. She fell into a void of dreamless sleep, pressing her spine to his stomach and praying to die now, like this, and never wake up. But it was short-lived. What the fuck, man? A boy shouted, kicking at Jory as sleep slipped away, crust in the corners of her eyes, her pasty mouth shut in shock. What are you doing here? Black, all this black around her, and this boy who wasn't Belak. Get out! Get out! Get out! The boy pushed her until she burst out of the air vent with the grill against her face. She breathed in dust from the floor, dazed from the sudden wake-up and dizzy from the lack of food in her. The boy got out of the vent, tiny and younger than her, holding a knife with dirty hands. What do you want? Who are you? Furious, his pale face dotted with red cheeks, 
He puffed like he'd just finished running a marathon. I'm looking for Balak. Jory refused to think he was already dead. She couldn't. This is his place. He lives here. Using the present tense helped her to set her mind at ease. He told me I could find him here. Jory stood up, ignoring the rusty weapon aimed at her. I should ask you what the fuck you're doing here. This isn't your place. It's Belak's. She shouted the last bit, annoyed by the boy. Maybe she was more annoyed with herself for not feeling the difference between a stranger and the love of her life. The boy hung on the wall for balance and finally stretched up, broken, a junkie on his last mile. I'm keeping things neat while he's out. His dull black eyes found Jory's. You smell like shit. I know. Jory limped toward the doorway, her hand shooting up to block the strong light coming from the ceiling in the main space. Buzzing with prostitutes working the alleys between the crates and vendors selling bruised apples and dirty clothes to pimps and junkies. Where is he? Jory asked when the boy stood by her. She didn't glance at him, only wanted to see Belak. How much longer could she hold on before breaking to pieces on the gallows ground? Follow the fire. The boy nodded to the big burst of flames at the back of the room. You can always find him where there's fire. Thanks. Jory pushed her way through the drunks and whores, barely heard the boy say, Hey, what's in it for you? She didn't stop, didn't answer, didn't care. Belak, this boy she'd met busking the streets above ground, was still giving a show away from the crates, the flames reflecting off the steel walls. A buck is a buck, he always said. Coming out of her trance, she realized people weren't watching Belak like she thought. They were screaming as they retreated to the main entrance. She broke through the shouting crowd, but never slowed down, kept going toward the flame, until Peds came into view. An attack. Bugs fought to enter the gallows, while Belak defended himself by spitting booze at the torch, making bombs of fire against the infestation. Human skin covered their bodies, long and lean and tall, with thousands of claws at the end of each leg, their heads half full of hair, the faces even more grotesque, with snapping jaws, beady eyes, and bits of bones poking out. Hybrids, all right. What you doing, you idiot? Run this way! Big Joe tried to grasp her arms, but Jory moved out of his reach and hurried toward Belloc, who faced the monsters alone. Stupid bitch, don't you see he's already dead? His voice died down with the screams of the gallows tribe, only then noticing death at their door. The biggest peed appeared right behind Big Joe, shadowing him. Claws clicked in anticipation, beady eyes glittered under the candlelight. The pusher turned around, mouth opened, eyes unblinking, and faced the bug. He started to scream incomprehensible words when the peed grabbed his neck with its claws and snapped his head off. It rolled in the junkie stampede rushing out of the boat container, no one really noticing as they kicked their pusher's head like a ball. His body was shred to pieces. Huge strips of fat hung down his waist like a peeled banana. His entrails gutted out, blood spattered on the dirt. That's what I call retribution. Getting near Balak, a burst of warmth touched her face and hands, his flame getting bigger as people got out of his way so he could fully aim at the bugs. Their skin sizzled and bubbled, 
burning with the alcohol, their high screeches and black fumes anything but human. Jory tripped on a peed skeleton, and Bellock spun around, ready to aim and fire. She protected her head with her hands, her voice hiding too, unable to shout, Stop! The sight of him, what it meant to have him by her side, to share these last moments on earth, left her mute. A ball of flame later, Bellock yelled, Get behind me, Jory! She did. Before them, the gallows crates, its rags and ceiling caught fire, just like the bugs. With nothing to stop it, the flames ate at every fabric, every piece of wood. Some bugs recoiled with fright at the sight of Belloc and his dragon breath. Others slithered closer, daring a duel. Belloc didn't miss a beat, always ignited his targets, kept going until peds came from all sides and nothing was left to do but run. The fire escape! Belloc held Jory's hand and they both scattered up the steps, guided by his dying torch. The bells! he said in a quiet voice. A bell factory, with molds as big as cars lining the entire length of the floor. They chose the largest one, its curves big enough to hide two, its hole on top barely wide enough to let them through. Jory passed easily, not questioning why they didn't escape like the others. Screams answered her. Morpedes waited outside as the fire gnawed at the gallows below, the warmth of the nearby flames resurrecting them into full fighting mode. Careful. Bellock slipped in and spun on his back, blocking the hole with his combat boots. Jory listened to the outside noise, Bellock's breath loud in the echo of the bell. So you finally came. Not a question. He must have known her baby couldn't survive in a time like this. Jory stopped herself from telling him how she died, though. I want to be with you. Jory felt so small and young. So old and gray. There's nothing left. We'll never be able to... Shh, Bella whispered as the ground shook under incoming creepy crawlers near the bell. Jory closed her eyes and pressed her face against her knees, taking as little space as possible. So many things to say. So many nights she dreamt of coming back to him, free to do what they both wanted... But the bugs ripped this moment from her like they did with everything else. In the dim bell, a ray of light came from the curve of the opening Belloc couldn't block. As bugs tried to lift the bell, as their claws scratched the copper and their jaws snapped at their meal, all she saw was him staring at her. His eyes were the deepest blue, like a storm on the ocean, with silver streaks, lightning in the clouds. His lips curved into a half-smile, and he held his hand out for her to grab, which she did, her heart skipping a beat. She bent above him and pressed her mouth on him, murmuring, I love you, and not caring if the bugs heard. The bell lifted, but she didn't see them grasp her legs, didn't feel them drag her away toward the hole in the ground. She held his gaze never once looked away as they ripped his skin to shreds, as his clothes revealed gaps of gore and blood, as his scream died with the last beat of his heart. All she held on to was this moment when she chose for her soul to leave, to die with Belak. Her life was finished and the nightmare over. Deep inside, as her fingers dug 
in the dirt to stop her descent, and she breathed in short gasps of terror. She knew this was far from the truth. Her new life was just beginning in the city of hell. Thank you for that, Anne. I guess you know what to expect from a post-apocalyptic tale called The Lucky Ones, don't you? Hmm? Yes, you do. Anne Michaud is an author of many skills, one of which, she said, is being distracted by depressing music and dark things. And she also reads and writes every day and enjoys speaking of herself in the third person. So she says, Since getting her master's degree in screenwriting from the University of London, England, Anne has written, directed, and produced three short films distributed by What Media in Toronto, Canada. And that is spelled O-U-A-T with an exclamation point at the end. The Lyric 2006 documentary, Worth a Thousand Words, is one of those. Her collection of five young adult novellas, Girls and Monsters, will soon be joined by Girls and Aliens. Others will follow. She has been published in quite a few anthologies as well. Tonight's tale, The Lucky Ones, was published in the City of Hell Chronicles, Volume 1. She's been represented in Tattered Souls 2, Flesh and Bone, The Rise of the Necromancers, and more. Keep your eyes open. She's out there. The Lucky Ones was narrated by Ms. Goldine Ogawa. Goldine is a writer of fantasy and science fiction, an illustrator, painter, and cartoonist. She's been writing novels since the age of 13. And while awaiting acceptance, however, Goldine began creating comics featuring many of the characters from her stories. These included the webcomics The Iron Wizard, produced with her brother Evan Ogawa from 2005 to 2010, and Angel Devil from 2004 to the present. She also wrote and illustrated the Tobias comic books for children, published by Rabbit Valley Comics. As a voice actor, she's narrated stories on the Starship Sofa and here on Tales to Terrify. She also produces a podcast of her own work, Radio Grimbald, and I want to thank you again, Goldine, for your excellent work, both on Cemetery Water in show 62 and on this one. I do hope you come back. And with that, fellow children of the night, I will ask you to be upstanding. My apologies, but you do have to go out into the wretchedness of the evening. There's just not enough room for all of you to stay the night here in the nook. I guess it's not too horrible out there, at least not weather-wise. Could be worse, could be hotter, muggier, buggier. And it will be. A few more weeks and the full horrors of the season will descend on us here in Chicago. 
the hundreds, both of heat and humidity, will settle on us. Billions of mosquitoes and crawly things will also join us. Well, that will be then. This is now. And now you must wander into the dark with thoughts of giant things, semi-human peds that prowl the night. But I bet you make it home. Bet you make it to the porch, bet you scoot indoors, climb the stairs and hug the soft and furry niceness of the cat. Scoot into bed and extend your bare feet carefully into the sheets, aware of and avoiding things that might twitch and skitter suddenly down there. Absent that tragedy, you let yourself drift into clean and pleasant dreams. Hmm? This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs>